Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 26 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. I am glad to be back with you. As you probably know, I took a week off because I just didn't have enough time to create a high-quality episode. I was in the middle of closing on three different mortgage deals, and I also had just released a new online course. So it was a bit of a hectic week, and I didn't want to put out a subpar episode but now I'm back and I'm ready to roll. Also, if you're interested, on Saturday morning, I uploaded a short YouTube video called Where I Record My Podcast. As the title suggests, I show you my spot in Vancouver where the Income Investing Podcast is recorded each week. So feel free to check it out. Just hop on to YouTube and type in Where I Record My Podcast, maybe add in my name, Alexis Asadi, to make it a uh, more efficient search. Okay, so for our first-time listeners, Income Investing with Alexis Asadi is a show that covers all things related to income-producing assets. We started off by discussing a favorite investment for many people called Real Estate Investment Trusts, or REITs. After that, we moved into direct mortgage lending, and we are now in the early stages of exploring investment funds. The topic of today's discussion is how investors can actually make money with investment funds. We're going to look at some of the mechanisms beyond simply earning a profit on your capital. Now, income investing is a popular strategy for a lot of people. It can come with all sorts of benefits. First, you can reinvest your dividends and buy more assets with them. Or you can use the cash to supplement or even replace your regular income. That's a major goal for a lot of our fellow listeners. Second, many income investments can also go up in value. It is often misconceived that they only pay dividends, but it's quite possible to earn passive income and realize a capital gain. Third, there are a ton of companies that trade on the stock market that pay monthly income. They're usually relatively inexpensive and can be purchased with under a few hundred dollars. So the barrier to entry is quite low and just about anyone can participate. And fourth, you can use these investments to diversify across countries and industries. Whether you're interested in real estate or energy or financial services, utilities or otherwise, there are most likely going to be income investments available to you. All right, so as always, let's take a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can submit a question online at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. It can literally be about anything. It does not have to relate to our current discussion. So I got a good question from Connor the other day, which I thought would be interesting for everyone. He wanted to know what the advantages are of buying stocks that pay out monthly as opposed to quarterly. So Connor, I prefer receiving monthly dividends for two reasons. First, most of my liabilities, like my phone bills, are due each month. So I like to have assets that operate on the same schedule. It's sort of like when you get paid at your job. You'd rather get paid every month or every two weeks instead of getting paid once every quarter. It just makes life a little bit easier to manage, especially if you plan to use your dividends to supplement your income. Second, getting paid each month means that you can make new investments each month. The more often you invest, the faster you can compound your growth. If I get paid 12 times a year, that means I can make 12 new investments. So I like to use what Albert Einstein once called the eighth wonder of the world, and that is the power of compounding interest. 
However, a company that pays monthly is not automatically better than one that does so quarterly. You've got to assess the merits of each business. But if I had two stocks with just about the same characteristics, I would probably invest in the one that pays dividends more frequently. And that's just my personal preference. Now, if you're looking for a place to find stocks that pay out monthly, I do have an email that you can subscribe to. It's a very simple email that identifies three to five American and Canadian stocks with the following characteristics. Obviously, they have to pay income every 30 days. They also must have a dividend yield of at least 6%. They have to have a track record of keeping stable or even increasing their dividend payments. And they have to be trading at a price that is lower than their historical highs. This is a research email that I send out on the first day of each month. I'm not promoting companies or recommending them. I'm just trying to help you find stocks with features that I know a lot of investors find appealing. If you want to subscribe to this email, you can go to alexisasadi.net slash email. Okay, so let's recap some of the more recent episodes of Income Investing to make sure that we are all caught up. Our segment on investment funds began in August, starting on episode number 23. As well, remember to tap subscribe if you want to get notified whenever a new show is released. And let's do this in bullet form to make it a bit simpler. Number one, an investment fund is a business that gathers money from multiple investors, often thousands of them. In exchange for your money, you, the investor, get shares or units in the fund, depending on how the company is structured. The fund manager then uses investors' capital to make investments into things like stocks and bonds and mortgages and real estate and venture capital projects, and countless other assets. The profits and losses as a result of those investments are absorbed by the fund and, by extension, its investors. Number two, one of the advantages of funds is that you can get involved in an industry under the direction of a professional manager. For example, if you want exposure to REITs but want somebody else to pick the best ones for you, then you might invest in a fund that concentrates on REITs the fund would probably own many different REITs, so you'd therefore also gain a degree of diversity. Number three, one of the most important things to remember is that individual investors have limited power over the fund manager, just like any other company. You are delegating a lot of authority to someone else to make good decisions on your behalf. In most cases, it's hard to have much input unless you own a chunk of the equity in the fund. Typically, you'll need at least 10% to even have a voice. And number four, many companies, especially investment funds, are divided into different classes or series of shares, for example, class A, class B, and class C. Each class will come with its own set of rights, restrictions, and characteristics, such as the ability to vote. Thus, it's important to understand what exactly you are buying when you invest in a fund. Is the fund divided into different classes? And if so, what rights and restrictions do your particular shares have? So now that we're getting deeper into investment funds, I want to talk a bit more about their mechanics. How do investors make money with them? What does it actually look like behind the scenes? One of the themes of this segment is that investment funds aren't all that different from any other company. But rather than developing properties or selling services, their business is to raise capital and deploy it into securities with the aim of generating a financial return for their shareholders or their unit holders. The same thing applies to how investors in funds can earn a profit with them. It's similar to investing in other firms like owning stock in a bank or having shares in a private business. 
Let's illustrate this by zooming out for a second and consider what it's like to invest in a private company. Say, for example, your friend Dan has a business that he needs money for. He's trying to raise $50,000 to develop his new product. Dan listened to episode 18 of the Income Investing Podcast, and he decided that he wanted to offer equity to investors instead of borrowing money. As such, he forms a corporation with 100,000 shares, each worth $1, and he offers 50,000 of those shares for sale. You trust Dan and you believe in his idea, so you invest $5,000 into the company, and you therefore own 5% of it. A year later, the business earns its first profit, $50,000. That's amazing for a new company. So what happens next? Well, as the business is a corporation, it has a board of directors. Since it's just a one-man show, Dan is the only director, so he alone can decide what he should do with the profit. Should he put it back into the company's operations, or should he pay it out as a dividend? Dan decides that it's better to pay it to shareholders as a dividend. The company doesn't really need the money right now, and his shareholders would be pleased with a cash payment. As such, he divides the $50,000 across all 100,000 shares as he must, so each share earns 5 cents, and since you have 5,000 shares, you get a payment of $2,500. Let's now say that you want your investment back. You can do that by selling your shares. However, Dan's company is not listed on the stock market, so your investment is illiquid. The only way to cash out is to find someone who is willing and able to buy those shares from you. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck with them. Thankfully, another investor in the company offers you $5,000 for all of your shares. You sell them and you walk away, getting your money back plus the $2,500 dividend that you earned earlier. It was a good experience all around. So let's look at what happened in this example. You, the investor, made money in two ways from Dan's company. First, you earned a dividend from the company's profits, which was declared by the board of directors. And second, you sold your shares to another investor when you wanted to cash out. Investors and funds have the same experience. They can receive dividends and cash distributions from what the manager pays out. They can also sell their shares or units to another investor, hopefully for a higher price than what they purchased them for. If you invest in a fund that focuses on generating income, it will likely own assets that do the same. Typical holdings will include dividend stocks, royalty trusts, rental real estate, mortgages, and other credit instruments. Basically, these funds look for investments that produce a steady stream of revenue. They limit their exposure to things like raw land and early-stage companies, because they are usually more buy-low, sell-high kinds of plays. They're a bit more speculative. Every month or quarter, the manager will assess how much income the fund has earned from its investments, and it will then decide what to do with it. Should the fund pay the money out to its investors? Should it reinvest the earnings into more assets? Are there any expenses or debts that need to be paid? In essence, the manager should ask two questions. First, what is the best use of this capital for my investors? And second, am I operating within the fund's mandate? Let's illustrate this with another example. ABC Income Fund has $200 million of assets under management, also known as AUM. Most of its holdings are large rental properties and real estate investment trusts. In September, the fund earned $1 million of revenue from its assets, but the manager decides to pay only $600,000 as a dividend to the investors. The remainder gets broken down as follows. 
$100,000 for the management fee, $100,000 to pay legal, accounting, and other administrative expenses, $150,000 to invest into more real estate, and $50,000 will be left as cash in the bank, just in case any investors want to redeem their shares. So to be clear, the dividend declared by funds are usually a function of how much income the fund earned, minus its expenses, minus whatever the manager decides to withhold. As such, when investors research an income fund, they often look at whether it's been able to maintain or increase its dividend payments over time. Rising payments can indicate that its holdings are producing more revenue or that its expenses are decreasing. However, declining payments might mean the opposite. From what I've seen, funds that focus on income-producing real estate, mortgage loans, and other financing instruments often have a relatively predictable level of revenue. That's because rental agreements, leases, and loans usually have fixed payment amounts. For example, when a landlord collects rent from a tenant, it's the same amount each month. It might change once a year, but it generally won't fluctuate monthly. On the other hand, income funds that earn royalties and dividends from resource and energy ventures often oscillate quite a bit. For instance, if oil prices drop or a well dries up, it can flatten the income payable to the fund and thus to its investors. Again, these are my general observations and are definitely not a rule. It completely depends on what kinds of businesses the fund invests in. A large energy company that pays dividends will often be quite reliable. Now, some funds pay dividends each month, while others do so quarterly, semi-annually, or even annually. Others don't even pay dividends at all. So why is that? And wouldn't it be simpler if all investment funds were homogenous in this regard? Well, the fund manager will generally have the right to make payments at its discretion. From an administrative perspective, it's easier to pay less frequently. However, a lot of income funds will pay monthly because managers know that income-oriented investors will prefer that. An investor in technology stocks, for instance, probably doesn't care too much about income, so a tech fund might only pay dividends once a year. If there are no dividends paid, you can assume that any of three things might be happening. First, the fund isn't earning any income, so there's nothing to distribute. This might be the case for funds that primarily employ a buy-low, sell-high strategy. For example, if the fund mostly buys raw land or construction real estate, then it probably won't generate revenue for a while. Second, the fund's income is being eaten up by its expenses, so there isn't too much left for investors. And third, the manager is withholding payments. Perhaps it's going to use the cash to make additional investments, or maybe it's being used to redeem investors who want to cash out. So those are the mechanisms behind earning income from an investment fund. But how does it work when you want to sell your shares for a capital gain? Well, to sell your shares in a fund, you have to know their value. This can be done by determining the net asset value of the fund, or its NAV, NAV. This is calculated by subtracting the fund's liabilities from its assets. It's easy to figure out the NAV of a fund that only invests in publicly traded securities. For example, if a fund is fully invested in a combination of stocks and bonds, you can simply look at the prices of those assets to determine the NAV of the fund. They're updated in real time on whatever exchange they're trading on. These kinds of funds can have their NAV updated daily. NAV is especially important for open-end funds. As we discussed earlier in the podcast, these funds can issue an unlimited number of shares. They issue new shares when investors want to buy in, and they cancel shares when investors want to cash out. 
in essence, the fund is buying those shares back from the investor and then cancels them. The price at which these shares are both issued and cancelled is at the net asset value for open-end funds. NAV is also important for closed-end funds, but it doesn't determine their share pricing. As you'll recall, these funds have a fixed number of shares. Once they're sold out, the only way to buy in is to purchase them from an existing investor. You can't buy them from the fund itself, because they would then have to issue new shares. Since you're buying the shares from an existing investor, the price will be determined by the markets. It's just like a stock. If there's a high demand, the price will rise and vice versa. However, it is still useful to know the NAV for a closed-end fund. That way you can figure out whether you're buying your shares at a discount or at a premium. You might think twice if the market value is a lot higher than its NAV. It's probably mispriced. Funds with substantial private holdings can't usually be valued in real time. For instance, a fund that buys real estate won't necessarily know how much its properties are worth unless it lists them for sale. It's even more challenging to figure out the values of funds that own private businesses, like our friend Dan's, for example. Thus, investment funds like these will often be valued annually or quarterly, after thorough due diligence by its management and accountants. As you might expect, they're less liquid than a fund that trades in public securities like stocks. So by now you should have a pretty good understanding of investment funds from a structural perspective. Going forward, we're going to look at different kinds of funds that concentrate on paying income, like credit funds, mortgage funds, royalty funds, and so forth. We're also going to assess their underlying assets to see how they generate revenue. So here are today's takeaways. First, investment funds pay dividends when they have cash to distribute. As such, they typically buy revenue-generating securities. Second, the dividends paid are determined by management. It's usually a function of how much cash the fund has, minus its expenses, minus what management withholds. And third, you can also profit from a capital gain when you invest in funds. This would either happen if the value of the fund increases, or if you can sell your shares or units to another investor for more than what you paid. Until next Wednesday, feel free to subscribe to my monthly income stock email, which you can find at alexisasadi.net slash email. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll talk to you soon.